Good morning, listeners. Welcome to Citizen U, a forum for exploring in-depth local government and related issues to increase your civic literacy, and with that, your ability to be an effective participant in local democracy. I'm your host, Mari Roden. Listeners are no doubt aware that Mendocino County is experiencing a severe drought. Public and private water sources are drying up in many areas of the county. How can we effectively manage the water shortage problem while demands for water continue to grow? There's the need for ag water and water to serve tourism, both of which are important to the county's economy. In addition, we have a strong and increasing need for new housing. How will Mendocino County accomplish all of this? Are there obstacles that with political will could be overcome to ease the crisis? Or are we at the mercy of climate change where nothing we do will ameliorate the problem? I'm guessing the truth is somewhere in the middle and my guest today will help us find that place. My guest is Sean White. Sean has been working on regional water issues since 1994. After being elected to the Marin Municipal Water District Board of Directors. Since that time, Sean has worked for the Sonoma County Water Agency, Russian River Flood Control District, and he is now the Director of Water Resources for the City of Ukiah. Throughout his career, Sean is focused on resolving conflicts between water supply and natural resources. Mr. White has served, uh, has received, I'm sorry, uh, the NOAA Environmental Stewardship Award, the National Performance Review from Vice President Al Gore, and commendation from the California Farm Bureau for his efforts. Good morning, Sean. Thank you for, thank you for being here. Good morning. It's a pleasure being here. Great. I first wanted to um, ask you a question about the Marin Municipal Water District and what inspired you to run for the board. Had you been involved in water issues at all prior to that? I, I had. Um, at that time, I was working uh, my first job out of college as a fisheries biologist for a uh, consulting firm in San Rafael. And at that time, um, Marin Municipal was really one of the first water agencies around here uh, in Northern California on the coast that was sort of struggling between supply and endangered fish, uh, coho in particular on, on Lagunitas Creek. And I was a sort of young, long-haired activist back then, and uh, I was attending a lot of the meetings uh, and really not being very effective. Um, and then I would go on mountain bike rides with my friends and complain about how ineffective I was being. And uh, on one of those uh, mountain bike rides, a friend of mine pointed out that uh, there was a vacancy on the board and I, I either needed to run or stop complaining during the rides. <laughs> so, so I ran. Um, I think I was only 27 at the time, and I, I ran against uh, an incumbent that had been in office for, for almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up winning by 421 votes out of about 13,000 or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I learned uh, a lot through that experience, and it really kind of changed the course of where I went in my career. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. So that's interesting to know that. Um, so we're in the midst, as I mentioned, of a critical drought right now. 
On April 15th of this year, while standing on the dry banks of Lake Mendocino, uh, Governor Newsom declared a regional drought state of emergency in the Russian River watershed affecting Sonoma and Mendocino counties. To address the acute drought impacts, the governor's emergency proclamation called on the state water board to consider modifying reservoir releases, limiting diversions from the Russian River, and curtailing water diversions in the Russian River watershed. Uh, to protect public health and to ensure the availability of drinking water for communities along the watershed. But we've seen in the Ukiah Valley how the impacts of the drought emergency have not been felt uniformly. For instance, you know, two neighbors right next door to each other in Ukiah, um, say one is within the city limits of Ukiah near the high school, and the other one is right next door but outside of the city limits. And, you know, they they pay different rates for their water but not only that you know one the one outside the city limits has brown grass in the yard and has to take two minute showers and the one right next door has a lush lush grass and the slip and slide for the kids and how how can these two scenarios coexist uh, the, the reason it exists really is just um, governance so uh, it is not uncommon for a community to be made up of uh, sort of a patchwork of special districts um, or, and or municipalities. And sort of going back to my experience at uh, MMWD, I think MMWD was municipal Marin, 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 Marin Municipal Water District was was once essentially, I think around 23 different water entities that uh, over time became one. And you know, if you look at the history of it. Um, it makes sense, right? Uh, back in the day when MMWD was founded, Sausalito was a long ways from Corte Madera, and that was a long ways from Fairfax. And then over time, they became uh, really one community. At least their their boundaries became coterminous, and over time, uh, they they all became one as well. And Ukiah is sort of the same, right? So uh, a long time ago, um, you know, down by Calpella to the center of Ukiah down to Hopland was was a long way and uh, all of those things so they were all served by individual individual agencies but over time uh, some of those boundaries have pushed out and those those communities have become coterminous the only thing that really hasn't happened here at least at the level of MMWD is that we don't have one water district so um, Depending on which side of the border you're on, you may uh, live in the boundary with a district that has a really ample supply, like the city of Ukiah, or you could live maybe in Millview that has an okay supply, or you could live in Redwood Valley that has a really terrible supply situation, and it's really just about um, where where you live in this sort of grid of uh, public agencies. That's fascinating. What other districts exist in the valley? You mentioned Millview and the city of Ukiah. And then uh, as a part B to that question, how secure are the water rights for these other districts? Maybe you could. Yeah, that, that's a that's a whole show, I think, in and of itself. But I think in you in the you know with the greater Ukiah Valley, there's seven or eight uh, water districts. I'll try and think of them all. Um, or a few. Yeah, I mean, maybe I don't south think we to need north, to... but there, there's mm -hmm. Hopland Public Utilities District. They mm -hmm. they do the Hopland area, mm -hmm. and then to the north of that, you have um, 
uh, flight rail that does some things sort of over um, near McNabb Creek. There's also Henry Mutual in that same neighborhood. So one neighborhood actually has two. And then north of that is Willow County Water District. And then you would enter the city of Ukiah, which has its own water district. And then to the east, you would have uh, Regina Heights, uh, Regina Water District, I mean. And then to the north of that, you'll have uh, Millview. And then to the north of that, you'll have Calpella Water District. And to the north of that, you would have Redwood Valley. Um, so there's quite a few. Right. Now, let, let's get to Lake Mendocino. There's a huge sure. lake to the north of Ukiah. And let's just say it's a typical year and there's water in the lake. There's um, who who owns the water in the lake that accumulates behind the dam and how did that come to be and so you know and that's connected to these districts and their water rights yeah in some ways so um mm -hmm. you know the lake was essentially uh, built in the late 50s it is a joint project between uh, the u.s army corps of engineers uh, sonoma water which is formerly known as sonoma county water agency and uh Russian River Flood Control. So they are the three partners that uh, sort of joint funded the lake. Um, but the county, uh, Mendocino County and Flood Control were, were very late to the party. Um, so it's sort of the thumbnail version of it is whenever the Army Corps of Engineers builds a, a large project, they always look for uh, a local sponsor. And uh, Mendocino County was uh, the first entity that was approached by the Army Corps, which makes sense because it was here in Mendocino County. And essentially, uh, all efforts to put together a cohesive force to get that partnership um, completed failed. And it really failed because there was sort of a disparate interest uh, throughout the county. Um, and people couldn't really see the benefits of participating in that project depending on where they lived. So folks on the coast didn't really want to contribute to uh, that project. Even people in Redwood Valley, they're directly adjacent. They also did not want to participate. And so it sort of stalled out. And the Army Corps started looking for uh, an alternative partner. Uh, Sonoma County was very eager to participate. And so they became sort of the original uh, local sponsor. But before that was completely done, um, Sonoma County, it's really kind of funny because you'll hear lots of talk about Sonoma sort of stealing the water. And really, uh, we passed on the water. We was not stolen. And Sonoma actually sent a number of letters to Mendocino County uh, after they agreed to participate, saying, like, you, know, you really need to rethink your, <laughs> your uh, decision, and you're going to have a tremendous amount of uh, sort of seller's remorse if you don't participate in this. And they basically begged Mendocino County to do something. So what ended up happening is they formed a special district with a much smaller footprint than was previously envisioned, where people wouldn't have any sort of difficulty imagining receiving benefit from this project. And uh, that footprint is basically the floor of the valley from the outlet of the dam down, down to Hopland. And that footprint is what's locally known as flood control or Russian River flood control. 
Its full name is really quite a mouthful. It's yeah. Mendocino County Russian River Flood Control and Water Conservation Improvement District. But that district became the local cost share partner for the project. Oh, Sean, can I interrupt you for just a sec? I hadn't heard those details of the story before. And I'm curious what the benefit might have been if Mendocino County had been more interested and far-sighted in the benefits of participation. It would be an entirely different situation here is really what would be happening, right? So um, getting back to sort of that joint funding, uh, the amount Sonoma contributed was significantly larger than the amount that uh, Mendocino County Mm -hmm. could put together. And as a result, that that water in the lake is split split on a sort of a pro rata basis. Uh, Sonoma County purchased about 37,000 acre feet of the water in the lake. Mendocino County purchased 8,000. It's kind of crazy when you look at the price. Uh, I think um, Mendocino County's portion was $612,000. So basically one mm-hmm. pretty decent house <laughs> in today's money. But back then, you know, that mm-hmm. was that was huge. Mm-hmm. But I think if the county would have had the foresight to participate uh, in general back in the day um, not only would we have a different water supply situation but it would have been an incredible source of revenue for the county general fund for over half a decade and the, the real benefit that would have been to the county is not water for folks on the coast but maybe uh, um, sheriff department with a reasonable amount of funding why or, because we would be selling water to sonoma yeah, and places people, downstream exactly uh-huh. you know so all the people that buy it from someone else would have been buying it from uh-huh. us and i think um that would have changed not only our water supply outlook but the overall financial outlook for the county as well significantly hmm. yeah it's a very unfortunate decision right well now lake mendocino is virtually a puddle so how are people in the ukiah valley getting their water and i suppose this varies by purveyor Um, it really does yeah so getting back to that grid mm -hmm. of where you live will really um that's what determines where you're getting your water from so in general everybody in the greater valley has either lost their water rights or had their water rights um greatly reduced in this emergency yes during Mm -hmm. this emergency through that emergency declaration that was um, declared by governor newsom essentially everybody has had their water rights curtailed which means you know not any form of rationing but you've just lost them entirely and then if you can demonstrate that there is a sort of youth a a human health and uh, safety emergency then you sort of get a small fraction of that returned and that is basically Uh, 55 gallons per person per day so if you're relying on your own water right that's kind of what you can get as a municipality Um, some folks also have contractual arrangements with Russian River flood control and while they have conservation they also own a fraction of the fraction that's in the lake this year and you can get uh, an allotment from there and most of the municipalities are doing that they're sort of pairing human health and safety with some reduced contract from Russian River Flood Control and, right. and getting by. Yeah, I had interrupted you earlier when you were talking about the history of Lake Mendocino and and I wanted to make it clear to listeners because I think it's interesting that Russian River Flood Control, um, which is the shorthand for the longer term, um, it owns 
water rights that it then sells right to the different districts and those districts don't necessarily have their own rights they rely on most of the districts have both so most of them Mm -hmm. have their own appropriative rights and then they supplement those with uh, contractual purchases from flood control and their need to do that really depends on the reliability of their own rights or the volume of them and usually <clears throat> in a good year, their their own rights might be most of what they need, and then they supplement a little. Or in a year like this year, their rights are pretty much off the table, and they're relying pretty heavily on on their contracts with flood control. Uh, the only entity that's really kind of in a different situation is uh, the city of Ukiah. The city of Ukiah um, actually relinquished its contract with flood control uh, last year. The city had a pretty large one, and it was sort of limiting the uh, by the city having it. It was water that wasn't available to other people, uh, Redwood Valley in particular, and the city had actually given that water back in previous years on a temporary basis uh, so folks in Redwood Valley could have access to more surplus water and uh Last year, we made the decision to do that permanently because the city has alternatives that that other folks don't have, primarily groundwater. Right. So I was going to, that's a perfect segue into what what the water resources are that are available to the city of Ukiah and how that makes it possible for the city to, you know, to... uh, enough that it can help the coast deal with the critical... um, shortage of water that's that's occurring over there how is that working yeah so um the city has like the other entities their its own appropriative rights and uh, those have all been curtailed but the city also has um what's known as a pre-14 right so that's a, a water right that basically pre-1914 yes that predates the existence of the state regulating water so they have sort of their own level of um conditioning that that make them uh, exceptionally reliable in, in in general the state basically doesn't have jurisdiction over them uh, one of the main reasons the governor came here to, to declare an emergency was uh, to use emergency powers to try and have actually jurisdiction over uh, things like pre-14 and repairing users which it normally does not that's sort of a new tactic that they've been using lately but Anyways, the city has very old, very senior, uh, very reliable rights. It also has a 1954 right that's in the same bucket as everybody else. It has been totally curtailed. Um, But the city also has entirely different sources. So over the last 10 years or so, the city has spent a lot of money um, trying to prepare for this kind of event and, um, you know, resiliency, which is very kind of, a popular term of art right now, but it is a real thing. You know, I think these types of events are getting more common. They're likely to get more common, and they're really the time to be preparing for them was 10 years ago. So the city has invested a lot of money in uh, groundwater facilities. Uh, the greater Ukiah Valley, depending on where you're situated, has a, a pretty outstanding aquifer, uh, can have some very nice water in it. <clears throat> and uh, the city's footprint happens to be sort of sitting right on top of the sweet spot of, of that resource. So we have four wells in, in Ukiah, 
and they can produce basically enough water for us to meet our basic needs uh, without diverting anything from the river and to sort of do our part and make sure that there's uh, as much water as possible in in the lake. The city has really ceased all of its diversions from the river and the reservoir for the remainder of this season. Um, and uh, that's that's what we're doing. So we've sort of moved off surface water and just running on groundwater right now. Yeah, it's remarkable that we're the city of Ukiah is adjacent to the Russian River and and Lake Mendocino, and yet we the the city is not relying on any of that water um, to to serve its its customers. Um, yeah. So any, by by doing that, you know that that's freed up. Uh, the ability to at least maybe divert a de minimis amount of water from from the river uh, to help people that literally have nothing. So, folks downstream of the lake, you know, are are in a tight pinch, but there there is some water there. The city is fine uh, on groundwater, but there are folks outside this area that just are frankly out of water, and, mm-hmm. and the coast is one of them. So, uh, the city um, essentially negotiated agreement uh, with the state board um, and some of our other partners to um, basically be able to utilize a, a small portion of our pre-14 right to to satiate those needs. And in general, the state board uh, was very sympathetic of what was happening at the coast, but uh, really wanted us to do it in a way that was sort of detrimental to um, the city's own precedent and durability of its right. But in the end of the day, we sort of reached a mutual agreement that we can all live with, and we've been uh, shipping water over to the coast now um, for a couple of weeks. So in case you've just tuned in, this is Citizen U, a forum for exploring local government and related issues to increase your civic literacy. I'm your host, Mari Roden, and today we're discussing water issues with Sean White, he is the Director of Water Resources for the City of Ukiah, and we've been talking about water supply and water management issues in the Ukiah Valley. And before we, um, I, want, I want to move on to recycled water and talk about that, but I want to go back to groundwater. I think people wonder how long, we've heard, how long groundwater resources could last. You know, how big is our aquifer? Because we've read or may have read and heard about what's happening in the Central Valley and that there's subsidence when the earth actually, you know, falls because groundwater aquifers are become depleted. So what's happening with the city, the aquifer here in the Ukiah Valley after we have been relying during a drought period on entirely on that water? Yeah, so the scale of our aquifer and the demand on our aquifer um, are just sort of a different situation, even our underlying geology, uh, than, than what you see in like the lower San Joaquin Valley, where truly astonishing things have happened. Um, you know, parts of that uh, area subsidence has been measured, you know, in uh, 10 to 13 feet in some areas, which is crazy. You know, that's like a two story house. That's how far <laughs> the elevation is dropped, which is just kind of really hard to even get your head around, you right. know. Um, but here, uh, we're, we're blessed with a fairly large aquifer and, in general, a uh, very de minimis demand. So um, the sort of strain we're putting on it is almost uh, negligible. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Even during this drought? Yeah, so the, the, the aquifer that the city is drawing from is um, known as Aquifer 2. It's very catchy. <laughs> That's how it's described in our, 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 our draft uh, groundwater sustainability plan that the, the county is preparing right now. And uh, the aquifer holds somewhere around 320,000 acre feet of water. So that is essentially two and a half times of Lake Mendocino full to the top. <laughs> and the city is extracting uh, about 1,000 acre feet or so from from that bucket. <clears throat> so <clears throat> it is, you know, one third of 1% uh, of, of that resource. And basically the way it works is during the winter, uh, as we get run off from the Western Hills, um, that hits the valley floor and over time uh, perks in. And we do see some changes in elevation in some parts of that water during droughts. We saw that in 2014, 15, and 16. Um, but you know, in places like the Central Valley, you'll see drawdown measured in hundreds of feet. We saw that in about less than 10 feet here in Ukiah. And even after that three-year event, as soon as it rained, everything returned to normal. Uh, this year, most of our wells are down around five feet. And uh, I think they'll stay there for a couple of years, even if it didn't rain. Uh, but as soon as it rains, they'll be topped off in literally a matter of months. Wow, if I were that neighbor uh, just outside the city limits with my brown grass, I would, I would want to move that uh, boundary <laughs> sign. <laughs> Um, of course, well, anyway, so another way that um, the city has uh, been able to relieve pressure on water behind Lake Mendocino and in the river itself um, is by its recycled water program. Can you talk about that program and who it's serving, how it's sure. being used? Well, it, it's primarily serving... Uh, the citizens of Ukiah uh, and some of the adjacent municipalities, well, and really uh, as as a wastewater project. So, how does it work? How yeah, do we how do we make recycled water? It, it is kind of a it's a little bit of a, a Rube Goldberg, but I'll, I'll do my best to explain it. So, the, the real um, initiative for for creating this project was uh, the city owns and operates the the wastewater plant in the city of Ukiah. Uh, that wastewater plant. Um, services the city itself and then it also works with the uh, Ukiah Valley Sanitation District to receive wastewater from both the footprint of Millview, Rogina, and Willow as well. And um, there are a lot of constraints uh, on doing any sort of water management in the Russian River both on the water side and the wastewater side um, because there's endangered fish and other things in the river and the um, constraints for water quality that needs that can be legally discharged to the river which is where wastewater goes uh, in most municipalities around here has just become more and more constrained and the level of treatment required um, to meet those has become more and more expensive and the things that are being removed are not necessarily you know crazy compounds or harmful things in our instance uh, our real limiting factor is is nitrogen and um, uh, there's not really so much a health concern, but it's really about a water quality concern. Nitrogen can make algae and other things grow, which is not great for, for the river. We want to try and keep it uh, clear and, and not turbid. Um, so we were looking at a very large uh, 
upgrade to our treatment plant to deal with the nitrate situation because our plant was really not designed to handle that because at the time it was constructed that was not even something that was regulated and then i would say my own internal struggle um, as a bit of an ocd person was this whole thought of spending 30-ish million dollars to build this nitrogen removal system so we could discharge water to the river Mm. and then it would go 10 feet downstream to the first farm and they would extract the water and then add nitrogen (laughs) (laughs) almost like that that's ridiculous Mm -hmm. you know that is such an inefficient use of all resources Mm -hmm. that if we have water with nitrogen in it and we have people adjacent to us that would like to have water with nitrogen in it we should just deliver it to those people instead of spending a lot of energy and money and chemicals to take it out so it can simply be Mm -hmm. re-outed yeah Mm -hmm. so um long before i worked at the city uh, the city started sort of framing out this project, and at that time I was at flood control, and uh, I was very happy to participate in that project because I did similar things at Sonoma, and I always thought this was such a good fit. You know, one of the major constraints when you do any recycle project is getting your source of recycled water to your demand. And in a lot of urban areas, that means tearing up streets and highways to get to these little parks. And here we had this little plant uh, next to a fantastic easement, the old rail corridor and other things, and just surrounded by agriculture. It was very low-hanging fruit. And uh, so the city started uh, with the planning process, and about the time I got to the city, um, it was time to look for funding and finish the permitting. And we finished it in 2019. So what it really does is... um, you have to have storage. The project can, uh, has about 66 million gallons of storage for recycled water. And recycled water is basically tertiary treated wastewater that's been through one final round of filtration and one additional round of disinfection. That's what makes it Title 22 or recycled water. But most of that happens and is available in the winter, and most people need it or application in the summer. So you have to have storage to sort of uh, account for that temporal offset between supply and demand. So we built three reservoirs with 66 million gallons of storage. And then we built a, a pipeline about eight miles long to get it from that storage to, to the demand in the community. Uh, we serve primarily agriculture along the river. Um, so it roughly goes south to north from the south end of Ukiah to the north end by the softball fields. Um, we do uh, a lot of viticulture. We do pears. We do some alfalfa. Uh, we also do some parks. We do Oak Manor Park, uh, the BMX and Little League Park at the end of Gobi Street. Uh, we also do the softball fields. We do the play area Oak Manor School. So we also have some more municipal uses. At the end of the day, what that's done is the city um, doesn't have any need at this time to add additional treatment. Uh, we no longer discharge the river. We haven't discharged in uh, almost two years now. And uh, these folks get uh, an basically a source of free water uh, and for things like lawns and alfalfa that nitrate is fantastic pears as well and then what that does also for folks in in the valley is that takes 
satiating the demand of those ag areas and the schools and the parks and the softball field uh, with recycled water means they're not taking it out of the river to meet those needs so it it preserves storage in lake mendocino for for others including mm-hmm. the city of ukiah yeah that's amazing um now doesn't the city have a like a spigot that uh can um, be filled with recycled water and has that been used we do uh we have what's called a truck fill station um you have to come to the city and get a a permit for utilizing that facility but that's basically so water haulers can back a a non-potable water truck to that and haul water off Uh, that water goes to a lot of construction so for dust control that sort of thing um it has gone to i'm sure some cannabis production in the hills and honestly as a recovering fisheries biologist i'd way rather have it come from my hydrant than uh, a creek that's probably running low on water in the hills um it goes to all sorts of other things um, that you can use irrigation uh, you name it. But yeah, we had, uh, I think at one time, uh, about 28 trucks running off of that hydrant every day. Wow. So is there enough of the recycled water to meet demand? There is. Um, you know, trucking water is a, is a kind of an interesting thing around here. It's very uh, widespread in this community. Um, but it's actually an excruciatingly inefficient way to move water. So while it's very eye-catching seeing all these little trucks buzzing around, they don't actually move uh, a whole lot of water. So um, our recycled water plant uh, produces, uh, in general, um, around one and a half million gallons a day, and a water truck moves 2,000 gallons. So uh, while it is sort of eye-catching, it's really not putting uh, the big dent in in our in our facilities um so that's that said you know we did get to a very low point uh in our recycled water storage this year two of our reservoirs were entirely depleted and one of them got very low uh because of the drought people are flushing their toilets less and doing all these sort of mindful things that they should be doing taking shorter showers all that so that greatly reduced the amount of wastewater showing up at our plant which then greatly reduced our our ability to produce recycled water. Um, The area that is sort of used as a forebay for our production is our perk pond, which by design leaks um, and by design uh, has a lot of evaporation and that reduced inflow paired with uh, percolation and evaporation was really kind of uh, impairing our ability to to meet demand so uh, my staff sort of went into this sort of apollo 13 mode uh, late in the summer this year and they revalved how uh, we run our plant and took advantage of some storage that was available because of the low inflows that didn't have percolation or evaporation issues mm. they used our a secondary clarifier that wasn't being utilized for storage and then uh, my recycled water crew um contacted all of our users and made sort of a schedule sort of smooth demand out and we now have uh we're, we're back to having some pretty decent storage that's great problem solving yeah does the city have plans to expand the recycled water project and uh save even more yes water? so the recycled water project was uh designed to be done in four phases and uh 
because of some great funding opportunities that happened in 2015, we birth, we built the first three in one big chunk instead of incrementally. And that's sort of the biggest part of the pie. Uh, all four phases together should produce around uh, 1,400 acre feet of water a year. So that's basically enough water for like 3,000 homes. That's a lot of water. Mm -hmm. And uh, phases one through three are 1,000 of, of that 1,400. We're currently uh, designing phase four, which is sort of the more urban side. It will go from the softball fields uh, through the west side up to the golf course and uh, Todd Grove Park and the cemetery and the high school. Um, at this point, our only real concern is whether or not we have enough water to meet phase four. We really struggled this year, which is an exceptional year uh, to meet demand. Um, and really, since it's been built, we haven't had a good normal year to gauge what our supply would be like. So, um, yes, we do have plans to build phase four, but we really need to see um, a few years of normal to really know um, if we have the ability to actually service phase four. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a fascinating and extremely important story behind all this, which is Potter Valley, the Potter Valley Project. Uh, I mean, literally, life as we know it along the Russian River watershed depends upon this project. Yeah. Um, there is a 120-year-old tunnel that's lined with redwood. I, I've been there. I've seen this yeah, tunnel. It's pretty it's, cool, actually. It's yeah. fascinating. It yeah. leaks. Water's dripping. It looks like the slightest earthquake in the entire tunnel could collapse. It's it's fascinating. Um, was so i want to ask you to talk about the P potter valley project it diverts water from the eel river and it was created in 1908 to generate hydroelectric power but it transformed potter valley and the ukiah valley and i would like you, and the the habitats uh, along the russian river so mm -hmm. if you could tell that story um that would be Sure. And really important for people to understand. I'll start by saying I'm really not the best person to tell this story. You know, that's a whole other show that would probably right. be best hosted by Janet Pauly. She is yeah. really our local expert on mm -hmm. that. But I definitely can give you that the, sort of the um, high elevation look at it. You know, so back in the in the era when people were looking at everything as an opportunity, uh, engineers sort of ruled the world. Um, Someone noticed that uh, up in the top of Potter Valley that the, the bottom of the Eel River was essentially a thousand feet higher than the bottom of the Russian River there. And all they had to do is drill a giant hole through the mountain. No big deal. <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, you could divert that water and then put some hydroelectric generators at the bottom and take advantage of all of that uh, hydraulic head and make a lot of electricity. Uh, so that's what they did. They built the Van Arsdale Dam at that time, and that, <clears throat> that was what's known as sort of a run-of-the-river type of operation when there was a lot of water piled up behind this little dam and it shot through, and then in the summer when it was dry, there was really no water left to, to make electricity. So then later, they added Scott Dam. That's what makes Lake Pillsbury so they could store more water um, so they could make electricity for sort of a broader period of time. Um, so water was coming through much more regularly than previously. That sort of became the foundation of a lot of the agriculture that you see in Potter Valley. 
and then later on when Lake Mendocino and Coyote Dam were added to the mix that made sort of a second bucket where that uh, abandoned water coming from that project could could pile up um, what really has been sort of the big change for things are the same constraints that uh, limited some of our operations um, with wastewater and that was really the uh, the listing of an adder salmon is in this area is either threatened or endangered and when that happened uh, in the eel river uh, they had to do a um, consultation with FERC FERC is the federal Ag federal energy regulatory commission and make sure that the way that project was being operated the potter valley project the potter valley project mm -hmm. was being operated was not sort of deleterious to these endangered fish uh, they found they determined that it was that produced something called an rpa which stands for a reasonable and prudent alternative and a lot of people worked on that rpa uh, and at the time it was originally finished um, knew there would be some reduction in water coming to uh, this side of of, of the uh, tunnel, but it wasn't going to be huge. Uh, after it got implemented, there was sort of an internal decision at National Marine Fisheries Service that uh, what was happening and what they thought they had agreed to wasn't really the same thing, and it got revisited. And when that happened, that's when the first really big um, loss to um, the Russian Riverside happened. You know, traditionally, uh, we used to see somewhere around 160,000 acre feet a year come through the tunnel. Uh, now it's around 40 or 50, so, you know, about a third. And what's really, I think, the biggest impact that most people don't understand is not really just the volume, because a lot of that initial 160 came through the tunnel at a time uh, that it couldn't be stored in Lake Mendocino because the lake would already be full from flood control operations and other things. So it just had to pass through. The inflows that were sort of most important were the ones in the late spring because if we'd had kind of a dry winter and Lake Mendocino was kind of low, you could use that late spring inflow to sort of top off the lake and that's why back in the day, uh, the lake didn't fluctuate nearly as much as it does now. It's because we're having so much less water mm -hmm. come from the Dur eels through the tunnel. Into but the and during that critical time. Right. So, you know, when I first moved to uh, the Ukiah Valley, and there was a marina at the north end of the lake, and people had boats there, and there was a gas station and all kinds of things, and they've, they've all gone away um, because that lack of reliability has now made it just not possible. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of where we're at now. I, I want, yeah, I want people to understand uh, how yeah. how the the diversion from the Eel River transformed the economy and the life of yeah, well, on this side and and how uh, so that that's what I want people Yeah, so it was really that project, you know, Lake Mendocino um, was not built for water supply. It was really built for flood protection. Um, the valley had experienced a number of devastating floods, and that's why you know the one other partner there is Russian River Flood Control. <laughs> you know, it was it was built primarily for uh, flood control, but its water supply um, capabilities were 
greatly enhanced by this sort of steady inflow from the eel, and like I said, particularly in that in that era, and having storage on this side and having regular inflow took us from what was really an ephemeral drainage, you know, uh, prehistory. The upper main stem used to dry up all the time. There wasn't year-round water in the upper Russian River to support the kind of uh, urban and agriculture um, that we have now that just wouldn't have really been possible with the supply at that time. But those projects paired together, you know, really were the foundation of what we know as sort of uh, our area at this point. So currently, you know, we're in this sort of greatly diminished state, and really what's happening now is there is a PG&E who used to own those facilities and operated them uh, have essentially decided to uh, no longer operate those facilities. There's been a lot of local effort and partnering with Sonoma Water, partnering with some people on the Eel River side to try and... Um, get the permission to operate those facilities in the future since PG&E has decided to bow out. And most recently, there have been a number of sort of very important uh, decisions by FERC that have really impaired the ability for those folks to effectively do that. So what's going to happen if, if FERC doesn't relicense the project? Uh, and I mean, yeah, so if it goes into decommissioning mode, I'm really not the right person to talk about that. That's really Janet's bailiwick, mm -hmm. and you'd really be best served by having it there. But, you know, the very short version of that is nothing good. You know, all of the sort of inputs that we become dependent on mm -hmm. will either change significantly or, or go away. Mm -hmm. And we'll sort of have all of these people and agriculture that are all predicated on that. Uh, with a massive shift in the supply, supply. baseline, right? Mm -hmm. You had said that that there had been that Lake Mendocino was constructed for flood control reasons. Was flooding a problem before the diversion, or did the diversion uh, allow much more water than to enter the the watershed through the eastern east fork? Yeah, no, the the project had nothing to do with the flooding, right? Mm -hmm. So. It's sort of the scaling of like the water trucks in the pipeline, right? So on a very uh, busy afternoon, I think the Potter Valley Tunnel can move about 300 cubic feet per second. Um, during our big floods, uh, the east branch of the river will be about 30,000 cubic feet per second. So it is just from runoff. You know, everyone knows around here it'll be dry, 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 and then rain like crazy and uh, some of the historic flows here in the in the greater Ukiah Valley were high enough um, to basically flood the entire valley all the way up to what is now kind of known as State Street. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. If you look at the railroad and where it is, you know, old, they were smart in the old days. <laughs> that's sort of where... <laughs> wow. That's sort of the old flood line. Incredible. Yeah. So... In case you just tuned in, uh, this is Citizen U, a forum for exploring in-depth local government and related issues to increase your civic literacy. I'm your host, Mari Roden, and today I've been discussing water issues with Sean White, the Director of Water Resources for the City of Ukiah. We're sort of um, towards the end of the, the hour, and um, I'm actually... 
I'm out of questions, Sean. <laughs> That's okay. And I, um, I wondered um, if there's some some topics that you wanted to add on this subject that uh, I haven't asked you about so far that you think are important for people to know about. Uh, not that I can think of at the moment. Um, no, I don't have anything else. I don't think. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, we can open the lineup. Uh, the lines up. We have uh, ten minutes left. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, oh, the phone number is eight nine five two four four eight. Yeah, I think one of the things, you know, while we wait, that you'll hear about a lot, um, and I think is one of the things as things change with Potter Valley that we really need to think about uh, as a community in general is Lake Mendocino was always originally designed to be built in in two phases and what we have right now is just phase one uh, phase two basically raises the top of the dam about 30 feet which doesn't seem like a lot but since reservoirs are sort of shaped like an upside down triangle uh, the amount of volume in the upper levels is much larger than in the bottom mm -hmm. the bottom is just this little pointed Narrow. area mm -hmm. and at the top it's this big flat area so by raising the dam 30 feet will essentially double uh, the volume it can store and uh, you'll see a lot of times um, we'll be in terrible shape here in Ukiah or the upper basin and to the south below Lake Sonoma generally not a severe situation and the reason is Lake Sonoma is large and it has sort of it can store multiple years of demand where Lake Mendocino is relatively small and is really just a year to year so you know a lot of times they talk about money right now we're living paycheck to paycheck because we don't have a savings account and uh, if we raise the reservoir especially if things do change in the Potter Valley it will give us that uh, multi-year supply that I think will be critical as as we move forward I hear people all the time you know it's like well we don't have enough water to fill it now how will we ever fill it but those large events that I referred to early they, they will you know the work has been done and they, they will fill uh, the reservoir. How important is that source, potential source of water, raising the dam, and ver com in com compared to tapping the aquifer that you said is so gigantic? Yeah, I think it's you know like anything. Uh, I frequently compare water to to sort of financial things, as most people can't get it when it's water, but they get it as soon as we talk about things they deal with uh, <laughs> on a normal day. Mm -hmm. And water is really no different than than your investments. You know, you want to have a diversified portfolio. You don't want to hang your hat on any one thing. And um, while we have a great aquifer here, you know, things can happen to aquifers. They, reckless people can contaminate them. They can get overdrafted. Lots of things can happen. So um, we're sort of the long-term vitality and sustainability of the upper basin. It would be good to have both. Mm -hmm. You know, recycle water is sort of the third leg on that. Um, and that's really sort of how you survive years like this year. It's like not putting all your chips on one square, but by having sort of uh, a diverse supply. I, have, I do have another question about... Um how much water costs for people? And does the cost, uh, uh, the amount that people are paying for their water, is, does it re is it reflective of, uh, of the expense of getting it to them? Well, it has to be, right? So there's a thing called Proposition 218 that passed uh, a number of years back. 
when you're calculating rates, you're only really allowed as a public entity to essentially charge what it costs to produce it and deliver it um, with a little bit of uh, money left over for maintenance and improving things in the future. But essentially, we, we are a nonprofit entity. So. Well, that's the city. But what a. I mean, I have heard that water's too cheap, and <clears throat> and, and and maybe that's it's a generalization. It doesn't apply yeah. here, but if 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 it were costs what it really um, yeah. So right now it really costs what it costs, right? But as, if things change and the footprint of uh, and the impacts of Potter Valley are what they are, um, what it will cost to produce will will go up significantly, and because of that, water will have to cost uh, mm-hmm. a lot more. I mean, to put it into perspective, it's here water is very inexpensive. So in Potter Valley, it's I think twelve dollars an acre foot, less than twenty bucks an acre foot. If you buy water from flood control, it's just under fifty dollars an acre foot. <clears throat> mm-hmm. If you buy it in Sonoma County, uh, depending on where you're at, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of five hundred dollars an acre foot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you're in Southern California, there are some places that charge almost $2,000 an acre foot for recycled water. So um, water here is super inexpensive, but that's because it's been cheap to secure and produce. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that changes, then so will the price. Mm-hmm. Um, when, another question for you, which is, what were the reasons that um, Mendocino, oh, we have a call. Um, let's let's try to take that call right now. Caller, you're on the air. Go ahead. Thanks. I got a question about ag pumps that are placed in the Russian River along its um, uh, route to the ocean. How often are those checked? And are they um, uh, uh, grand, are able to be grandfathered in? And um, I know in the past I've seen just uh, backhoes um, dig a, a hole near the edge of the river and, and lift these pumps in mm-hmm. with uh, three to four inch sized hoses. And I'm just wondering how often these are checked. That's a great and, Thank you, caller. That's a great question. Yeah, we, we do have unregulated um, diversions from from the river. Could you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, sure. I would say they're they're not unregulated, actually. So people see all of those and sort of, uh, I think, believe or like to believe that it's just some big free-for-all. But most of those intakes uh, belong to uh, farmers that have both their own appropriative rights, just like the municipalities, then almost all of them also have contracts uh, with Russian River Flood Control to divert that water. Uh, and those are also in fixed amounts. Um, SB 88 passed a few years ago. It requires all of them to be metered and uh, have some sort of data tracking. And I know pretty much every ag diversion on the upper basin because when i worked for flood control i used to have to read all of those meters and i've never seen one that wasn't metered or part of flood control i know they look sort of um, agricultural in nature but you can't keep a diversion in the river permanently uh, because during the winter high flows will demolish them if you leave them in so they're seasonal so they have to come out 
And then as sediment piles up during the winter, they usually have to go out and clean them out so they can put them back in. And that's sort of what that person was observing. Uh, nowadays, you also have to get a permit from Fish and Wildlife for that excavation process as well to put your diversion back in. So while they look kind of wild and woolly, they're actually very uh, carefully managed. Mm-hmm. Well, Sean, I really appreciate you being here. It was a very informative hour. I hope it was for people listening. Do you have any parting comments? Um, and would you please tell listeners how they might reach you if they have any further questions? Yeah, sure. No, I, I don't think I have any any parting comments. Uh, feel free to email me at, at my desk at the city, which is just swhite at cityviewkai.com. Great. Thank you so much for tuning in to Citizen U. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.